This is an ABC podcast. Once upon a time, Anna Yen was able to balance three raw eggs on a chopstick on the end of her nose. Anna had first trained in circus with the Nanjing acrobatic troupe of China. Not in China, though, but in Albury, New South Wales. Anna grew up as the daughter of Chinese parents in Sydney's Bondi Junction. Her dad had one of the first Chinese restaurants there. And although it surprised Anna at the time, her dad gave his blessing to her running away to join the circus. Anna then started creating plays of her own, and she turned to the rich but hidden history of her own family. Anna had known very little about her parents' stories growing up. Her dad had once mentioned that he'd lived on Nauru during the war, while her mum had passed away when Anna was 16, so she only had snippets about her life. But with a mix of dogged research and some happy serendipity, Anna pieced together both her parents' histories, which turn out to be part of a wider story involving opera, indentured labour and enormous courage. Anna Yen has since written two groundbreaking plays based on her parents' lives called Chinese Takeaway and Slow Boat. Hi, Anna. Hi, Sarah. Tell me, Anna, about the theatre show that your dad took you to when you were a little girl back in the 1970s. Ah, in around 72 or 73, after Whitlam had lowered the bamboo curtain and normalised relationships between China and Australia, a um, Chinese acrobatic troupe was performing in Sydney at the Capitol Theatre and the audience were elated by the stunning skill but also the celebration of Chinese culture. I was about 12 at the time and I remember sort of physically that moment of exuberance and absolute pleasure of everyone in the audience. I mean, especially when two of the acrobats, they were vocal mimics and they mimicked something like, you know, uh, waltzing Matilda or, or uh, you know, kookaburra sits in the old gum tree with their mouths, you know, playing a whole orchestra with their vocal ability. But their acrobatic skills are stunning. But it was the joyous celebration that I absolutely loved. What kind of history does acrobatics have in China? Oh, Chinese acrobatics has at least a couple of thousand years of history. There's, you know, old older drawings of people doing acrobatics in the streets and stuff like that. It's a long history and I think most people know that the skill level of Chinese acrobats has been trained to the level, you know, like very high skill, unique in the use of things like as many people as you can get on a bicycle at a time. <laughs> it's the kind of skills that you watch almost with your hands in front of your eyes because it just looks so dangerous and so likely to go wrong, but it doesn't seem to usually. Yeah, but it's always presented with such beauty and elegance and beautiful costumes and, and so beautifully. Your dad became a co-owner of a Chinese restaurant in Bondi Junction, as I mentioned, back in the 1950s. What was it called? It was called the Sun Kong Restaurant and it was in Bronte Road, Bondi Junction. And Mm. did it offer takeaway right back in the 50s? Yes. And what was wonderful, and it was very, very popular, Sarah, one of the stories that I heard when I was on my research road was that people used to come on Friday and Saturday night with their saucepans and queue up and get their takeaway put into their saucepans. Because this is what pre-takeaway containers being available. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Imagine if we did that now, if we all queued up at the takeaway with our own saucepans. I just love it. And what was the decor like inside for people who dined in? 
Oh, like, so it was built, they set it up, I believe, in 1950. So what I loved was that on the walls there were those frosted mirrors where there were the opaque paintings of, you know, an elegant scene from nature and people sat in wooden booths, two wooden booths like benches, but with the backs facing each other with a table in the middle. So fantastic. And uh, the restaurant had one of those, what do you call them? I think it's a rude name nowadays, but one of those tro- uh, pulley things where the downstairs people put the food in and upstairs you sort of haul on it on a rope and there's a wooden door and the waiter pulls it out. Yeah, and it had a winding staircase to go up to the second level as well. Did you work there as a, as a kid or as a teenager? Not as a kid, but as a teenager I did uh, work at the cash register just for a few months when actually my father didn't want me working late night shifts at another place. And so I did work for him, but I did end up still working at the other <laughs> at the oh, really? other place. But it was, you know, it was I did the took the orders. But this is in the seventies now, and I think by that stage they'd changed the decor. You know, nineteen fifties was out, and they there's a different decor, but more it, but, modern, which would not be modern now. I think there was then sort of like embroidered paintings, embroidery landscape actually on the wall, beautiful still. Beautiful, yeah. What was on the menu? Ah, in the 50s, and it didn't change till the 70s till they refurbished it. It, There were Chinese and Australian meals, so classical uh, things offered in Chinese, Australian or Cantonese, Australian menus like uh, beef with black bean sauce and chicken with black bean sauce or what else, pork with black bean sauce probably and uh, sweet and sour pork and spring rolls and prawn cutlets, which my father made the spring rolls by hand. And I believe, you know, we might have been enrolled in helping at some point. I can't remember now. But in the 70s then they changed it and became more, a little bit more adventurous because the Australian palate had changed a bit by the late 70s. Were yeah. they all doing also doing side offers of like steak and... Oh, and, yes, and that's right. Chops. There was the Australian menu and you could get steak and chips or steak and eggs and fish and chips or fish and eggs or you could get omelette. You could get ham omelette. You could get... <laughs> And combination omelette. And you could get coffee, which was, oh, one of the, you know, jars, like international roast in a teaspoon in a cup, that sort of coffee that you could get at that place. How much of the of the week did your dad spend at the restaurant when you were growing up? Well, he was there every day of the week from 10 in the morning till 10 at night, except for Tuesday afternoons and evenings. So... Like many small business owners, it was all work, 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 really. So did yeah. you see much of him during the week then? Well, during school time, only when I was older, because when we were younger, we'd be in bed. But uh, on Sundays, he'd take us off to uh, Yum Cha in Chinatown, uh, <laughs> you know, to Dixon Street and um, have beautiful Yum Cha, which at that time... The, most of the customers were Chinese heritage people. But these days, it's wonderful. You know, you go to Yum Cha and everybody's there. So your dad was working around the clock at his restaurant. What do you think your parents wanted for you, Anna? What kind of work did they imagine you doing after school? Well, I think they imagined that we would be, you know, public servants or lawyers or doctors. And so... You know, the second generation migrant kids, the the parents work hard so that we can do better and, you know, what great 
uh, <laughs> occupations than to be doctors or lawyers. So I, I did actually apply for those things and I did actually start studying arts law after uni at Sydney Uni. Instead of law classes, though, you were learning to juggle when you were a <laughs> university student. What inspired that? Uh, I had some great friends at Sydney Uni and um, a friend of mine said to me one time in about 30 when really I wasn't coping with law, but I didn't, anyway, the law and I were not meant for each other. (laughs) But uh, my friend said there's a once a week circus class in Balmain down the road, Monday nights, three hours a week. I think you'd love it. Why don't you come? By that time I had already... um, I'd been to a party, as you do at uni, and I'd seen a fellow juggling three oranges, and I had by that point got so excited by just seeing that that I taught myself how to juggle with three onions standing over my bed until there was no more bits of the onion left except the middle. So my friend was right in saying, you know, uh, you know, why don't you come? So I went along, and um, I, you know, I did that class, was really, really loved it, and uh, I didn't... But I didn't think more about it. I did finish uni with an arts degree, majoring in like economics, well, political economics and art history. The law and I separated at some point along the way. You then ran off to Tasmania to join the circus. What sort of circus was it? Ah, well, what happened, I went down to Tassie to volunteer to do some research on the sort of political economy of the state to help with the campaign to stop the Gordon Below Franklin Dam. And anyway, I decided to stay down there. And um, I'd met some women who had done one weekends of circus. So I had done, you know, like 10, three-hour classes and they'd done one weekend you, of circus. You were a seasoned, experienced performer. Yeah, we, we were. <laughs> and we contrast. hadn't done any other. But we said, let's form the Tasmanian Women's Circus. So we did. And uh, we meant to perform just for the next International Women's Day down at Salamanca Markets, you know, perform down there and we loved it so much and we, we you know juggled the housework and did <laughs> political theatre circus commentary with our very high level of skill. <laughs> and, um, were you dropping a few of those items you were trying to juggle? Well no I don't think so. I mean my biggest trick at the time was to stand on my friend's shoulder and juggle three balls which we were handmade balls at that time with our handmade costumes or op shop costumes and it was great. We loved it so much. You know the Tasmanian women's circus stayed together for maybe 18 months and uh, during that time there was a community arts company in Tasmania called Kaleidoscope who had already set up a young people's circus there called the Tasmanian Youth Circus with the help of Ian Reese. So these people, David Durand and Bernice Durand, set up the Tasmanian Youth Circus and they organised for graduates from the Flying Fruit Fly Circus. Well, they weren't graduates yet. They were high school people and it was uh, summer holidays. They brought five uh, high school kids who were in their last two years of school um, in Albury-Wodonga. They brought them over to teach us to share their skills with the Women's Circus and the Tasmanian Youth Circus. And they had just recently had a three-month project with members of the Nanjing Acrobatic Troupe of China. So they were very inspired by that and kind of taught us how to count in Mandarin 1 to 10 as they taught us the Chinese-style kicks, which is part of the basic training. So how did you then get the opportunity to train with these Chinese acrobats, the, the Nanjing Acrobatic Troupe? Well, serendipitously, after the young people from the Australian young people from the Fruit Flies went back 
to Aubrey-Wodonga. About three months after that, I happened to pick up a magazine about youth arts in Australia. And I happened to read an article saying that the Flying Fruit Fly Circus was organising a second Nanjing acrobatic project, this time for nine months, and that uh, as part of it, they were inviting one person from every state to be part of it for nine months so that each state could benefit from, you know, the skills and cultural exchange that was happening. And I just picked up the phone, rang them and said, can I speak to, you know, one of these young people who happened to be there? And they said, look... We actually just did ask one of the people, adults in Tasmania, a school teacher, whether he would come and be that one person from Tassie. But he has declined because he's got a teacher and he's got a family. So, yes, Lucky you can you. come. <laughs> you come, Anna. You know, and, and as I said, when I got there, I had only done the amount of circus skills that I'd already mentioned. And tell me about this troupe, the Nanjing Acrobatic Troupe. What, what kind of group of acrobats were they? Oh, look, the Nanjing Acrobatic Troupe of China, like many of the acrobatic troops, had high, uh, amazing skill. So the people that came out were someone who was a handstand specialist, Lu Gongrong, and there was a um, juggling specialist, Chen Jinping. He became my teacher. He became my um, teacher in two areas of skill. There was a a sort of uh, clown tumbling man called Yang Xiaodi. There was a contortionist, young contortionist and handstand artist called Miss Chen. And then there was the boss of the troupe, Lu Yi, who was a multi-skilled person. And they came out with a uh, interpreter as well. And had they been training since they were, were young children? Yes. So, you know, generally, from what I understand, uh, people start training at around the age of five. And then they, they do basic training for a couple of years and then they, during that time, people see what their skills, their their sort of aptitude is and then they get into specialties. But they all specialise training. But they can all do amazing basic training. They get trained in flexibility, in strength, in coordination. What did they make of you and, and your skill level, Anna? Yes, well, <laughs> you, you know... I was uh, 25 when I started and they took one look at me and went, well, you see, because I couldn't tumble, I couldn't do the splits, couldn't do a handstand for nuts, but they (laughs) went, well, through an interpreter because I couldn't speak uh, Mandarin and they couldn't speak English much at the time. The sort of side thing, when they first walked in, they saw me, a Chinese heritage-looking person, came straight to me and started talking in Mandarin and I was like, oh, no, because I could not speak any Mandarin. I can speak a bit of Cantonese. At that time, I could speak some Cantonese. And the only Mandarin I knew was how to count to 10 that the young kids had <laughs> taught me, the right? Fly fruit fly the fly fruit circus had taught you. You know, the Anglo heritage <laughs> fruit fly kids had taught me. So anyway, they took one look at me and also at some of the other adults who'd been invited as the sort of people from the other states. Anyway, they looked at me and said, but you are Chinese, so we better teach you something well. We, we want to teach, we want to give you something you know, something. And so they decided to teach me slack rope. Um, What's slack rope? Is that the same as tightrope? No. So uh, slack rope is a uh, rope that's like a loose rope. It's sort of like the shape of a parabola, like an upside down rainbow. I learnt on a six mil wire rope that was uh, put into two ends in the wall. And so you can kind of do character work on it. So actually, 
I think they chose very well for me because I have good concentration and it turns out I can, I'm sort of, can work out about balance. So even though, uh, you know, backflips and back salts and strength stuff and flexibility is not my thing because, you know, I was almost 25 at this point and, you know, as a kid I'd only done uh, netballs, a softball and run for the train, you know. <laughs> Were they fierce teachers? Most of them had by this stage heard about the first Nanjing project, so they realised already that they couldn't train the adults as fiercely as they could train the young kids in China. So actually they uh, adapted their teaching for where we were at, which is a sign of a good teacher, you know, to teach someone where they're at. I think they pushed the kids from the flying fruit fly harder because they could because they were already... Um, well, not that they pushed, pushed them, but, you know, they took them further because they already had a greater capacity. And um, and the people that came from the Circus Oz that were also training for six weeks there out of the nine months they were there, they also had some skills so and training background. So um, they adapted to the local situation. Tell me about the trick that a Nanjing acrobat who'd come to live in Australia taught you? Yes, after the second Nanjing project, um, there, there was one acrobat who came and, and stayed, uh, Lu Gonrong, a venerable, wonderful, wonderful teacher. He taught me how to balance three raw eggs on a chopstick on my nose. How uh, does someone teach you how to do that? Well, he, he was doing it kindly one time. So when I'd gone back to Tassie after the Nanjing project, I did go back and I ran the Tasmanian Youth Circus for four years. And when I was there at the Tasmanian Youth Circus, I would uh, aim to bring in um, guest trainers from other places. And one of the people I was able to bring to Hobart was uh, Lu Gonrong. And he kindly was sort of like, as the others, like, I'd like to give something to you, you know, because he saw what I was doing for the young people, you know, giving them an opportunity for all sorts of things. And so he taught me that. But you start by balancing a uh, tennis racket on your nose, something bigger and longer with more weight because, like, to balance just a chopstick on your nose, it's, it, which is quite short in relative terms, very difficult. And so, you know, I'd start with the tennis racket thing or then you start with uh, an egg and, well, wooden eggs, you know. So I had wooden eggs or even a mandarin or something, you know, like, because you don't start with three eggs. Like when I started performing it, I think I only started performing it with one raw egg and a couple of years later, two raw eggs. And it took a while before I got the guts up, you know, and the precision up to do three raw eggs. It wasn't until I think I was performing with Rock and Roll Circus when I finally came, when I came to live in Brisbane, that I was practising and uh, performing three raw eggs regularly. And did it feel fantastic when it worked? It felt fantastic when you take your hands off and, yep, they stay. <laughs> but on the occasion when you took your hands away, and no, they did not. It was like having egg, well, it was literally egg on your face. And the feeling, it's very, it was very, oh. It, anyway, when it works, it's exhilarating. But I do remember one time when I performed uh, with Rock and Roll Circus and it fell off and... We were on a mat, you know, like a tumbling mat, because you do put tumbling mats for the other tricks, and the egg bounced, and you could hear the audience member go, oh, it's fake. 
<laughs> you know, you know. Anyway, anyway, you know, because eggs are sort of round, curvish. On this freak occasion, it bounced instead of cracked and made a mess. <laughs> when you were working with Rock and Roll Circus in Brisbane, you started thinking about putting your own plays together, putting different stories on stage. This is back in the, the early 90s. Were there many Chinese-Australian theatre makers putting Chinese-Australian stories on stage there? No, um, there weren't. So uh, in the early 90s, I had seen um, William Young's work, his storytelling with slides, and I had also seen the work of one woman, um, May May Thorne, who had made a stage play about her mother and her her mother. And uh, other than that, no. But it was, I just had this strong feeling because I'd been doing rock and roll circus for four years because after youth circus, I thought, I really feel like performing. So anyway, I auditioned, got a job, came to Brisbane. After four years at rock and roll where we had done uh, lots of social justice shows, like one with Amnesty International, one with young people in detention centres, I had this feeling I'd really like to see more um, Asian heritage stories on stage. And then I went, oh, I've got to do it, (laughs) you know. To start that, you flew to Hong Kong. Who did you want to speak to in Hong Kong? I'd arranged to... um, interview my grandmother, my mother's mother, I'd arranged it by letter because that's how you communicated in those days to, with my aunt who speaks English and Cantonese, my youngest aunt, you know, could she interpret for me while I interviewed my grandma? And, you know, I believe she'd organised that grandma had said yes. But when I got there, I said to grandma, you know, through my aunt, will you tell me stories about, your, you know, my mother when she was growing up? And my grandma said, oh, I was too busy when your mother was young. Ask your aunt, her third sister, who who I did, and she did tell me things. But I said, Grandma, will you tell me stories about yourself then? And then she did. What did she tell you? Well, the first story that she told me was that when she was five or six, her parents lost everything in a big flood. So her parents, who were peasant farmers from the Pearl River Delta area in Guangdong, had been raising um, fish and silkworms, you know. And she said they lost everything in a big flood. So then her parents sold her to work in the household of a rich man in Guangdong where she wasn't paid wages or given any formal schooling, only food and somewhere to sleep. And that when she was 16, 15 or 16, she ran away and went back to her mother's village, saw the mother and father's village and then uh, left for Hong Kong where she worked as a servant. And the interesting thing is, so my aunt is translating for me and I look at my aunt's face and I go, did you know these stories? And she goes... No, actually, this is the first time I've heard them. Why do you think that was, Anna? Why was your grandma reluctant or why hadn't she shared these these stories in history before? Well, I think, I mean, a lot of old people don't share the stories of the hard time of that era and I think that she just got on with it. My grandma, my mother's mother, was a formidable woman who just got on with it, you know, like no... No airs and graces. Why? I guess why um, dwell on the past? Why not just do what needs to be done in the present? I guess so. You'd have to ask her, which we can't. But 
I think that's very common. I mean, when we go ahead to my father's story, he didn't tell me either anything. And I guess people just didn't. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. So, Anna, you made this this trip to Hong Kong and heard these incredible stories from your grandmother's life, but it was your mother's life that you originally had wanted to learn more about. What did your auntie tell you about your mum as a youngster? What had your mum dreamed of? Oh, well, my aunt, who was a little bit older than my mother, said that my mother had actually dreamed of being a movie star and had um, even got some photos taken. And I have seen some photos of my mother, you know, nicely dressed, sort of posing. I don't know whether they're the ones that she had, you know, taken. What, What did she look like? Oh, a beautiful, slim young woman who... Made her all her own clothes, actually. Really, you know, like uh, replicas of 1950s fashionable clothes. And in those days, everyone always had their hair done and, you know, permed and so on. And set perfectly. Yes, set, all all that. What did you find out about your mum's religion? I had often wondered why I was brought up at a Catholic school. And it turned out that post-World War II in Hong Kong, everyone was very poor you know, because Japan had bombed Hong Kong a lot, it being an allied port and everything like that. And so the Catholic Church had offered uh, rice to anyone who converted to Catholicism. So my grandfather, my mother's father, had gone to the church and, you know, accepted rice and therefore, you know, (laughs) as the bargain, you had to convert to Catholicism. Now, so therefore my mother was brought up in a Catholic school because of that, you know, because of grandfather being a rice Christian, that's what they were called, you know. And apparently she didn't mind Catholicism when she uh, went to school, but at one point the nuns did something, said one thing and did another, you know, that she didn't like and went. Then so she apparently didn't think, you know, she wondered about it. How was it that your mum ended up coming to Australia and and marrying your dad? So at one point, uh, my father initiated letter-writing conversations with my mother's older sister. So, you know, someone, my father had, you know, after the restaurant had, I believe this this is all conjecture, right? This is all storytelling and this is the sort of stories that I've come across is that uh, my father had asked uh, some friends whether there was anyone eligible that they knew in Hong Kong and was introduced to my mother's family. At this point, your dad was running the Chinese restaurant in Bondi Junction. With a cohort of other men, yes. And um, it was quite a few years after that. Anyway, he'd been introduced to my mother's family and had started a conversation with my mother's older sister and they had liked each other. Then she decided to apply for a marriage visa or my father sponsored an application for a marriage visa. But because of various regulations at the time, like 
that related to the white Australia, what's known as the white Australia policy, which was still functioning at the time in the mid 50s. This was the mid 50s. That was denied. So my mother's elder sister wasn't given a marriage visa, so she couldn't come in. And so my mother's family sent my mother out on a student visa fairly, you know, a few years after that. And she, because the Colombo plan had was starting to let Chinese or Asian students in. And so this is later in the 50s. My mother came out on a student visa and started studying at a college. I believe it was either sort of business studies or supportive of business studies, secretarial studies. I'm not 100% sure. And so she came out and, and met up with your father. He was still in contact with the family. I guess she was the sister who was available to be married if she was the yes. one who had a visa. Yes, yes. So anyway, they ended up marrying and then there were the four children. And so that's how come I ended up being born in Australia at the Waverley War Memorial Hospital, you know, and grew, growing up in Bondi. For you, Anna, going to Hong Kong on that trip and speaking to your grandmother and your aunt, you must have had a different sense of your mum, given that she passed away when you were 16, hearing these other stories of her and and thinking back about what it would have been like as an 18-year-old or so as she was to leave her country, her language, everyone she knows and come with this visa to this completely other country. Did you start thinking about her differently? Yes, um, that's exactly right. The When I realised, um, when I started delving into her story, you know, it occurred to me that leaving your country at 17, 18, coming to a, a very different land where, and it wasn't a common journey in those days. Now it is, like that kind of migration is more common. But that's actually a very brave thing to do. I realised how brave and tenacious she had been in leaving her family and coming here and um, studying to start. Uh, not her English wasn't perfect, and yeah, it's a very courageous thing. I met a woman when I was studying, doing some theatre studies in Europe, who was also from Hong Kong. She pointed that out to me. She said, "Anna, your mother leaving Hong Kong in the fifth, late fifties to go and to a new land and study was a very." Very tenacious thing to do, very courageous. You'd wanted to start bringing more Asian stories to the Australian stage and there you had this amazing set of stories from your mum and her grandma and, and as you say, you put those onto stage with the play Chinese Takeaway. And it debuted, Anna, in, in 1997 at a time when there was a lot of really ugly rhetoric in Australian politics about the presence of people with Asian heritage in Australia and, and whether that was even a legitimate thing in our nation. Did your play feel like, in one sense, a kind of answer to those sorts of oh, politicians? Oh, definitely, Sarah. Um, yes, I had started working on this. So I started doing the research in 93, 94 and was sort of working out, seeking ways to develop it from then until 97. But yes, it ha serendipitously came on stage when, um, you know, a certain senator from Ipswich was, you know, on the uh, on the rise. And, and I, at that time, personally saw more, felt, well, people actually said stuff to, you know, like more, there was more anti-Asian and anti-Chinese sentiment that it looked like people felt like that they could say things that they thought about, but, you know, was not too polite to say people actually said it. 
and also I realised at the time that um, if there weren't a lot of stories about Chinese people uh, uh, either on stage or film or in books, people still only saw the stereotype of um, that, that was out there in the media and uh, in various entertainment fields, but also that people didn't know that many Chinese people in their lives except for the people who served them the takeaway at the shops. And I wanted to put a face, a human face, to Chinese heritage people. And, of course, like, I can't tell everybody's stories. I can only tell, you know, this one story from my point of view at that time when I was that age, you know. So, but I wanted to contribute to uh, a sort of more human um, story about Chinese heritage people so that people could see beyond the stereotype, just contribute to the conversation so that it's not just about... Um, narrow-minded, well, not not in a uh, sort of meaningly, meaning to be that way, but out of ignorance. I wanted to sort of increase the sort of stories. Your father died in 1992 mm. and after he passed away, how did you unexpectedly unearth a clue to his story, courtesy of a, another ABC radio program? Yes, Sarah, <laughs> very serendipitously. So when I grew up, I only knew he had, I knew he'd been on Nauru, but that's all. And he hadn't said anything, even though once at Yumcha, when I was 16, I asked him, what was uh, Nauru like? He said, the boats were cool. And that was it. And then on his more or less deathbed, he told my older sister that the first place he worked after he arrived in Australia was Hedges Creek. Now he's had a very strong Cantonese accent. I looked in, in Central Australia. He said Northern Territory Hedges Creek. I looked it up, couldn't find anything. Hedges Creek. That's what I thought. So you know, I looked it up and I couldn't find anything. So I was invited to speak on the ABC radio at the launch of uh, John Fitzgerald's book Big White Lie because they wanted someone who could speak about growing up as a Chinese Australian and they knew I'd done Chinese takeaway. I went to that. And they gave me as a present John's book, which was on my shelf for two years before I read it. And then I did read it and there was a tiny chapter that said there were about 600 Chinese indentured labourers who were evacuated from Nauru where they'd been working for the British Phosphate Commission, that's Australia, New Zealand and British government, phosphate mining, and they had been evacuated to Brisbane and sent to Central Australia to Hatches Creek. Hatches, Hatches, not Hedges. Hatches Creek to mine Wolfram and then invited back to Brisbane to work um, on Bulimba by General Douglas MacArthur, the head of the uh, Allies campaign, the uh, the Pacific campaign during World War II. He was based in Brisbane and he was... So that's what the book said. This is extraordinary, Anna. Like that, just those few sentences. I've heard nothing about any of that in in terms of Australian history. Was this all new for you? It was absolutely new for me. I had had no idea that there had been a cohort of um, Chinese men who were working on Bulimba for the Allies during World War II. I, I did know that my father had been in Queensland around the end of the war because he'd said about Queensland... Uh, hard times, uh, didn't have two bob to rub together. And that was it. And he said the name Wickham Street and that was it. So I knew that about him. But I didn't know about um, the labour force that um, MacArthur had uh, assembled to work here. He hadn't... So, so you just 
there's this sort of fairly small reference in this history book that you happen across. What was your next step in trying to find out the details of your your father's story, given that he was no longer around to ask about it? So I uh, wrote to the author, John Fitzgerald, who wrote back and said, look, um, I'm a bit busy, but that's very interesting. I'll put you on to uh, the researcher who worked with me on his book, uh, May Gorfen, and May... We set up an email conversation um, and this wonderfully generous Chinese historian who lives in Victoria or lived in Victoria, she actually asked me, so uh, how do you properly, how do you spell your father's name in various ways? How, what's the anglicisation? And um, I had found out that my father's arrival paper said he arrived in Brisbane on the 8th of March, 1942, on a boat, which I couldn't really read, like SS. I thought free... free, I couldn't tell. Something, you know, handwriting in ink. She came back and said, I have found your father on the uh, ship's log, the the evacuating ship's log that brought the... the ship that brought the men to Brisbane. Your father's name is on it, number 1142 um, Chinese Coolie. So, uh, and the boat was called the SS Trienza. So, um, and what had happened, I discovered, was that the Allies had evacuated the Chinese men off Nauru Island and Ocean Island ahead of the Japanese coming to uh, take Nauru. And um, the, the Free French Navy had come and got them and, the, <laughs> and then uh, on the Triomphant and then um, brought, uh, swapped ships at the New Hebrides and the last the surviving uh, British Phosphate Commission boat, the SS Trienza, the, you know, that hadn't been bombed by the Germans on Nauru, um, brought them safely to Australia, you know, evading any... There was no... They were not being chased by the Japanese. How, but, how many men were well, in this group? there were more than this, but 480 Chinese men were evacuated off Nauru, leaving up over 100 and something there. And, and then when the... Um, Triomphant got to New Hebrides, it raced back and got 100 or so men off Ocean Island, Chinese men off Ocean Island who were working there. What were the conditions then that they were working under? Well, uh, on Nauru, so the British Phosphate Commission, which was actually run by the Australian government but owned by the British and New Zealand as well, they were mining phosphate on Nauru for many years and... um, they were doing. They weren't. They weren't just labourers. Uh, there were also um, welders and boilermakers and shipwrights and so on, engineers and you know hard work, six days a week in the sun, um, digging, loading, um, dust bagging, you know, ch- chipping at things. Um, so um, yeah, for a, a, an agreed wage, which most of the men. Um, they hired themselves out in order to be able to send back money to their families in China because China at the time had been war-torn for a long time. There was sort of civil war and there was the civil war and then the Japan, then Japan had uh, started uh, coming into, you know, invading in China in 36. So when the men, you know, hired themselves off to Nauru, it, it was understandable because it was pretty tough times in China. So they were brought to Australia as the Japanese were advancing through yep. the Pacific. Yep. 
why, why were they brought to Central Australia? Ah, because they? in Central Australia at Hatches Creek and Warhope, there's a wolfram mine there, wolfram from tungsten. You can use it to make the tips of uh, weapons hard. Like so they were hard. mining that then in, in yeah, Central Australia? Yeah, they were mining Australia. that in Central Australia and the... British Phosphate Commission wanted to keep their workforce together just in case they were able to go back to Nauru. And the Australian government thought, well, from what I understand, they went, OK, great, we can employ them up in Hatches Creek. And um, so the men were put on a train after they docked in Brisbane on the 8th of March, 42, and they went on a train uh, down south and uh, west towards Broken Hill and then Port Augusta, where the men negotiated for six weeks proper working conditions and had a nice time in Port Augusta, apparently, bought the town out of soft drink and fruitcake and, you know, bought Western clothes and camped at the race course there. But anyway, they then went to Hatches Creek and Warhope and times were, the conditions were really tough, you know, hot, and the conditions that they'd agreed uh, with the government for were not all, not all met. Like the men were still in temporary accommodation in tents uh, by the time they left 18 months ago, months after they arrived. And so the men went on a lot of strikes, actually. Really? Yeah, so they, they were did actually a, quite a collectively organised yeah, group. And they actually also did that on Nauru too. The men were uh, fought a lot for equal pay and proper working conditions and also politically. So on uh, Nauru, when they heard that the British Phosphate Commission Commission was still selling phosphate to Japan, they refused to load the boats bound for Japan. And also some of the men, when they uh, heard that the Japanese were increasing their uh, activities against Chinese in China, sort of demanded that the British Phosphate Commission repatriate them and, you know, work towards it. And so the, the, the Phosphate Commission, to their credit, did actually mm. with some compensation. You know, they did whoever wanted to go or some went. And in Australia, in Central Australia, the men went on go slows and on strikes um, quite a lot. They were uh, inspired by a boatload of uh, Chinese sailors who were stranded in Western Australia during the war as well, who they went on, the Western Australian Chinese men went on strike to get equal pay with, uh, try and get equal pay with Australian sailors and stormtroopers, government stormtroopers tried to break the strike and, you know, kill, two of the Chinese men were killed. And they, this cohort of Chinese men that my father was with, you know, apparently heard about it and they, you know, stood strong. So, um, yes. What what did General MacArthur want to bring this, this group of four or five hundred Chinese men to Brisbane for during uh, the war? He, uh, his specific campaign, he wanted to, um, what I understand, he wanted to uh, build boats or put together barges that would help with his Pacific campaign to um, free up uh, places that the Japanese had taken. And so there, on Bilimba there was a uh, barge assembly plant and they were putting together prefabricated barges and, uh, you know, as part of his Pacific campaign to free the Pacific of the Japanese. And he had actually, before he heard of this cohort of men in the central desert, had tried to get a Chinese labour force from uh, in Asia, like from Singapore or Malaysia, but because of the war couldn't get them across. And so when he heard of this um, 
cohort of men, he invited them across. So he not only invited them across, he, the men from Perth came across too, and also Chinese Australians were invited to join in as well. So there were about 800 Chinese men, heritage men, including Chinese Australian men, who ended up working on Bilimba during World War II for MacArthur. And they were paid three times as much as what they were paid on Nauru and um, uh, were clothed probably. So one of the pieces, the areas of contention in Central Australia was that men were never given proper work clothes or work shoes in Central Australia, they were given lounge suits and boots too big and without shoelaces. You know, I mean, you could argue it was wartime. Anyway, they were not particularly happy with that. But in on Bilimba, with the uh, the US um, uh, armed forces, they were paid properly, housed properly, uh, and shod properly, shod properly, <laughs> and given great food. Uh, I mean, great wages. So they were happy here. And that. One thing you discovered in your research about your dad's time, early years in Australia, was the performing, the theatrics oh, yes. that this group of men were engaged in. What did you discover? Yes, I discovered that on Nauru, on their one night a week off, the men would have concerts and they would often improvise Cantonese opera so six men would get backstage before a show and go, what what story will we tell? And they'd go, this one, and then they'd improvise it. And if they didn't finish it that night off, they'd do it the next one. So and they had very beautiful, high art, this kind of Cantonese opera? At that opera. stage, it was like popular art. So it, a friend of mine said it's kind of in the same realm as karaoke. <laughs> For those men, it was... Like it wasn't high art at all. It was popular storytelling and temporary bamboo stages were brought by Cantonese opera troops to villages in China where sort of the ordinary people uh, came and uh, watched. And also what I also found out is in Central Australia in Hatches Creek, the men made their own theatre and I saw a photo of that. And on Bulimba, the men also had concerts for each other. And I met a woman who lived on Bulimba at the time next door, a, a European heritage Australian woman who was 17, who was invited to the concerts. And I asked her, you know, what were the concerts, you know, that the Chinese men uh, led about? And she said, I don't know. I was too busy flirting. <laughs> and uh, so the, in, I know it's beautiful, isn't it? And I was so lucky to meet these people and to come across these stories. So Slow Boat, the stage play that I wrote and that was recently on at the Brisbane Festival at the Powerhouse, was actually a fictitious concert at the end of World War II where six of the men tell the story of their travels from war-torn China to hard work on Nauru to hard work in Central Australia to hard work, well-paid and, and good times in, on Bulimba and and also their gratitude for the way the locals in on Bulimba kind of, you know, generally supported them. You know, anyway, that's a long story. What a perfect thing, though, I think, for you as a performer and theatre maker to have discovered that for, for these men labouring in foreign climes under such difficult conditions that performance and art was part of what was keeping keeping them happy, keeping them connected to their culture. I mean, do you think that's part of the reason why your dad was supportive of you, Anna, in this decision not to become a lawyer or a doctor but to, to join the circus? I think absolutely, Sarah. In, in hindsight, when I found out these stories and particularly the um, performance um, that, that the men experienced in these hard times, I really rec realised that he appreciated the importance of culture and art in people's, 
in keeping people's spirits up and keeping communities together and um, and connecting people. So I think that that was why he unusually, you know, for a uh, migrant father to say to a, a daughter, you know, a second generation daughter, you know, as long as you're happy when he found out <laughs> I was doing circus. Anna, it's been an amazing uh, story to hear about. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. My pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. And again, was my guest on Conversations today. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.